Hello, everyone. Welcome again to Grace in Common, a conversation between four friends from four different countries and three different continents on matters of public life, theology, religion, and culture, especially on matters regarding neo-Calvinism as well. We are joined today with a special guest. Her name is Leah Boyd. She's a student at Truett Seminary at Baylor University, but also someone that you might know about from Twitter, introducing many to the theologian Herman Bovink. Welcome, Leah. Hi, it's so good to be here. It's great to have you, Leah. And, you know, we've been uh, considering the ways in which you have introduced so many folks to the theologian Herman Bovink, and perhaps many would not have um, expected this coming from you. I would love to hear more about how you were introduced towards neo-Calvinism, how you were attracted to this particular theological figure, and, and what, yeah, what attracted you to this movement? Yeah, well, it's funny because during summer of 2020, during the COVID stay-at-home order, I was stuck inside and I decided to make myself useful and take an online theology class at Reformed Theological Seminary through the Global Education Program. And so I actually signed up for your class. Um, and I'm sure that no one is shocked that you signed us a lot of Bavink to read. <laughs> and it's funny, I did a search for all the times that I've mentioned Bavink in my text messages. And it all starts with me texting my friends like, wow, we have to read so much of this theologian guy. It's so thick. Like, I don't know what he's talking about to the very end of the class where I'm texting everybody like, wow, this guy rocks. I love him so much. I'm his biggest fan. And I was kind of hooked after that, really. And I'm not just investing myself into Bobbing's literature, but also figures of neo-Calvinism like Kuiper and Klaus Hilder. And I really just fell in love with the tradition. And some of the reasons I think that is, you know, I'm the daughter of two engineers. And so my dad's basically a rocket scientist and my mom wrote code for the U.S. space shuttle program. So though somehow I turned out like all artsy and musical, I'm still a very like logical ordered thinker. And science and technology is really important important to my family. And so I was really drawn to how these neo-Calvinist thinkers are able to really logically and clearly synthesize doctrine and scripture and truth of a very conservative faith, but also do so without completely shunning cultural engagement, considering how these doctrines kind of engage in modernity and science and art. And Bavink also especially tackles topics well that are quite relevant to our age, like racism and evolution and the Catholic study of the church. So those, those are some of the things I think overall really what drew me to these thinkers in this tradition. There's so much there, Leah. Well, well, first of all, that's a wonderful introduction, kind of a, a, a nutshell survey of, of all things from involving there. And also one of the things that I tried to, you know, contribute to and, and teach throughout that course was to say that here's someone who receives the Reformed tradition. And as someone who receives the Reformed tradition, he doesn't see this as somehow inimical towards cultural engagement, but, but someone that, that sees the Reformed as helping us move forward conversations about culture, race, justice, and, and these sort of matters as well. And you have been very much influenced by, by him and thinking about how to, how to integrate music, especially yes. um, in, in theology and how to, to, to really motivate worship from a theological perspective. Can you talk about how you have been writing about these sort of matters recently as well? Yeah, so I have been researching the um, role of Kuiper and Bavink, uh, the kind of, you know, the figureheads of neo-Calvinism, They what they did in the Gazangan Skaveski. And of course, if I pronounce any such words incorrectly, please 
please correct me. Um, or the issue of the hymns in the in the Dutch Reformed Church. And it's really interesting because I didn't expect to really find a lot about the role that they've played uh, in you know church music because they were really focused more on the dogmatics of doctrine more so than the actual liturgy. But I actually have found a lot of really exciting things about the way that they um, helped push away from exclusive psalmody in the Dutch Reformed Church, which is kind of a big deal. And so, but I think that it really um, completely has helped me understand the way that they operated on a lot of ecclesiastical issues of trying to balance orthodoxy of their cherished reformed heritage while also being interested and open to the progression of, of the church. And so that's been really exciting for me to kind of explore uh, what they've been talking about regarding, um, you know, how the church works together and, um, and the ways that we can might look back on our heritage, but also we can might try new things. We don't need to be scared of it. Yeah, that's interesting, Leah, thank you. I, I, well, I just wanna uh, add some thoughts to what you said about your being a, um, a daughter of, an, of two engineers. Um, but that, that also kind of applies to myself. My, my dad is also an engineer, and comes from a family of engineers and my brothers are. Um, so I've, I've often thought, but also forgotten a bit, and now you remind me of it, how somehow there might be a relation between these two between the, the tradition of neo-Calvinism. I've also noted that in um, the seminary where I went to, there were a lot of people who started um, enge engineer schooling first and then switched to theology. And I haven't done any statistical research or anything, but there, there may be a connection between the two traditions. Um, I know, for example, also of, um, and there's also a more, maybe a more theological connection. I, I, I know that Klaas Schilder, um, he loved to go out, go and walk in Rotterdam, looking at the construction of new neighborhoods. And he he just he just enjoyed watching how technology developed, and and there were new 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 movements and new architectural inventions. Um, so there is also in that a connection, and maybe it connects even to what you just said about how there were also a movement of liturgical reform. Um, where they thought we just need progress, just like the, the, the of course in, in, in engineering, progress is very important, especially the, the past century has been, uh, and also the 19th century has, has been immense in that respect. So there may also be a connection that, that both need um, progress and, and evaluation over time. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, we have to also acknowledge that your mother also sat in the class and she <laughs> made some wonderful comments and contributions. So there's some fond memories there. <laughs> she did. She loved it. I mean, she just, she'd never heard anything like that before. And she just, she adored you. So she'll be happy for the shout out. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Definitely give a shout out to Leah Boyd's mother. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that, that I've found in, in doing some more reading recently about the original neo-Calvinists and liturgy, church worship is, so I recognize a lot of the kind of stuff that you were just talking about, Leah, with church worship culture. Um, you know, I grew up on the other side of the Atlantic, and I actually grew up in a church that practiced a cappella exclusive psalm singing until, oh, which year did it change? So it was when I was living in camp and doing my postdoc. So that's not that long ago that it shifted to inclusive psalmody and to including musical instruments and uh, including hymns and other th songs as well. But it's a really big, it's a big thing to negotiate as a church. Um, when you have, you know, you have 150 songs and that's it, and the only instrument is the human voice, and that's beautiful. And there's, and when it's done really well, it's it's really unbeatable, um, especially if it's backed up with a, a rich hermeneutical tradition where 
actually, as you sing the Psalms, you're singing about the incarnation and you're singing about Christ's atonement and you're singing about the Trinity. Um, but then to shift into, uh, to shift away from that, uh, is it's kind of difficult to negotiate and like you become quite aware if you're living through that shift in a very immediate sense of, you know, how do you, how do you add to the good that you already have without um, undermining it or, or lessening you know, the knowledge of the Psalms that you get if you grew up in a church that sings them all the time. Like I sang, you know, 12 Psalms a week between growing up between two Sunday services and then as a teenager going to like a midweek um, prayer meeting as well. And you just, you learn them off by heart and it's a huge privilege. Um, so that those kinds of challenges are, are, are real in working out how do you, you only have so many opportunities to sing songs together each week and a few fewer will be Sam's, then how do you choose all of that well? How do you negotiate instrumentation when you haven't had that before? And something that I found really fascinating and doing a little bit of reading as prep for, for our conversation today was looking at Abraham Kuyper's book, Our Worship, which is so interesting with his own kind of take on um, well, his argument is for organ music as the like the happy medium to steer between all of the different pitfalls. So for him, there's this like reformed ideal, I guess, that is a cappella time singing because the human voice is, is the most beautiful, most immediate God-given instrument. And then the Psalms are God's word, so it's kind of hard to top them as, as songs. Um, but sustaining the whole worshiping or the, the, the sing, the, the sung life of a, of a congregation exclusively with a cappella singing is kind of difficult unless the people are very good singers. So he's the kind of stuff he writes in that book. Is, it's kind of hilarious to read about, um, <laughs> about how they tried to bring in presenters who then became posers and worship leaders and they, they became a distraction. Um, which is interesting because if you look at Scottish church history in the 19th century with liturgy and with presenters, like in Edinburgh, if you were a really good um, singer, you could make a very handsome living by being a professional singer to lead Sam singing in churches. But then that introduces all kinds of other motivations for who this person is and that you're kind of a rock star in, in an ecclesiastical context in your own day. So for Kuiper, that kind of thing is, is a really big problem as well. So you want to avoid that whilst having music that's not distracting. Um, and then for him, the organ becomes the, the, the savior of the day liturgically, because it's, um, it's kind of, you, you don't need a presenter to lead. You just start hammering out the tune on the organ and then somehow the congregation will all start singing together. And, um, and then it's, it carries the melody and so on. Um, I'm, I, 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 I'm curious to know you if you've come across that work or those kinds of arguments in Kuiper. I, I, I find them interesting ah. because we made that move from you know Scotland to the Netherlands to an organ-based denomination, which and we hadn't grown up with organs in church and found it kind of weird actually. Aesthetically, we didn't really like it all that much, but we're happy to to be part of it. Right. Well, that's actually a big deal that even Kuiper um, in our worship in 1911, which is when he published it, which is actually a compilation of a myriad of essays that he had written, uh, which is our worship. But it's actually a big deal that he even um, advocated for the organ because the canons of Dort, notably in Article 69, had banned the organ as well as banning hymns. And so that was kind of the, the, the whole argument here, right, is that 
it's like, we don't want to go against the canons of Dort. We don't want to go against what our reformed fathers had told us to do in our churches. It's illegal, quite literally, to play the organ or to sing hymns. But also we kind of want to increase our church singing. I found a really interesting quote from um, Bavink. This is some, one of his manuscripts that he never actually published on our church song. And he wrote, everyone knows that singing in our churches often leaves much to be desired. It decreases edification many times instead of increasing edification. Many Psalms are never used and only in rare cases. In most of our churches, only 25 of the 150 Psalms are regularly sung. And this is most regrettable because most in our churches have no hymns and are limited to only the Psalms. And that was um, in 1891 that he wrote that. And so you can see that this is an ongoing problem for both Kuiper and Babbink. They're thinking about these issues. They're thinking about how can we increase edification? How can we increase the church music? But how can we also stay with these, um, with these things that we have in our confessions? And so, yeah, that's a really interesting thing. Of course, our worship by Kuiper is kind of the seminal. You want to read new Calvinist literature about uh, liturgy that's kind of the the core work that you'll go to first but it also is interesting I will say that um, you can see a big development in Kuiper from uh, the ninth from the 19th century to the 20th century uh, in the 19th century Abraham Kuiper was absolutely an exclusive psalmist and then you see him kind of progress his views away from that by the 20th century um, and then it'll be picked up like people like like Klaus Schildler um, and uh, going forward. And so, um, yeah, so it's really interesting also for me to see kind of how they kind of progressed into this view as well. And which is of course very neo-Calvinist to progress, but yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting, Leah, and helpful. Uh, one question I have, and this is, this is for anybody to pick up is, how do you guys see neo-Calvinist theology, neo-Calvinist dogmatics, uh, the distinctive ideas that we often talk about within neo-Calvinism affecting our theologies of worship and the development of liturgy. I mean, is this an area that neo-Calvinism is underdeveloped or has it really impacted, uh, has neo-Calvinist thought really impacted doctrines of worship and developments of liturgies? Yeah, I'm sure that others can say far more on this than I can, but um, you know, something that Leah has mentioned a couple of times is you know, talking about sensibilities that are very distinctly neo-Calvinist. And we've talked about this quite a lot on the podcast so far, particularly a sensibility towards the past, that you want to drive a tradition forward, but you're driving the tradition forward rather than being a radical revisionist or just being anti-tradition. So a tradition is a living tradition only if it continues through the ages. So you that creates a very particular kind of posture towards um, like the history of doctrine, for example. So, you know, neo-Calvinist theology is quite different to a lot of contemporary 19th, 20th century theology that like a lot of it will retain the, like the packaging of theology in the past. So you've got similar labels and or kind of similar superstructure, but you feel quite a lot of liberty to perform like quite, quite radical surgery on what's underneath the skin. Um, and you could think about that that kind of approach too in terms of church worship um, where the neo-calvinist tradition really cares about continuing what was there before but as with lots of other things you know how it thinks about democracy or, or society for example or art or culture outside of the church um it's it's a distinct kind of sensibility about history i guess and your connectedness to the past and where you want to go in the future so that sensibility also carries over into how you, the tradition will think about worship um, and liturgy. So I think that's probably an, 
there's a helpful sensibility that that again Leah has pointed out a couple of times. Yeah, and it's so important to point out that the neo-Calvinist tradition really has its roots in an ecclesiology. It, it is really a spiritual movement, a theological movement first, and liturgy and worship, as Leah was pointing out, was very much a part of their uh, concentration. So when we think about the broader neo-Calvinist movement after Bobby and Kuyper, we've talked about Klaus Schilder, but even in contemporary times, there's lots of work from neo-Calvinist thinkers on liturgy, on worship, and how habits are formed through the worship of the church and beyond the worship of the church through disciplines. So we have, of course, James K. Smith's work in the cultural liturgies program there, the trilogy that he did for Baker Academic. We also see Nicholas Wolterstorff recently turning towards liturgy in his recent work, Acting Liturgically, that was just published in OUP, which builds upon earlier motifs from him. And also even thinkers like Bill Edgar, who has really devoted a lot of attention on the the theology of music and how Calvinism can actually produce music and engage with something like even jazz, which is not something we're thinking about. So I wonder why that's the case too, right? Why is it that neo-Calvinism has actually been a productive, fruitful foundation for inquiry towards things like liturgy and art? And I have my own instincts and intuitions about why that is, especially rooted in Boving's effective anthropology, affective with an A, he believes that there is a, a foundational place for affects informing the human self and music definitely hits us affectionately rather than cognitively. But I wonder what you all think about that. Yeah, great. That's, that's good. I mean, not only is it the affective dimension, the subjective dimension, but also every subjective dimension has an objective dimension that stands behind it, right? And so when you think about the theoretical groundwork of liturgy itself. Why is music so important for worship? Um, Neo-Calvinism offers something very unique, unique that many tr traditions don't. Uh, Bavink talks about the doctrine of creation as the song of creation. And it's really interesting that in the organic motif that, that we all talk about so often, probably his most select word is to talk about the harmony between unity and diversity. And so these musical terms are metaphorical descriptions of the order upon which God has made everything. And so, I mean, I like to think of music, our music and our subjective, uh, the subjective power of music in our lives being our mimicking of God, the beauty of God's own speech, that God's speech goes forth as song as music itself, you know, Tolkien captured that well in the Silmarillion and Lewis and Narnia. And I think the neo-Calvinist tradition captures that in his doctrine of creation. And I, I think the doctrine of creation is the reason that music is so important for liturgy. And so, um, so maybe that that's a theoretical foundation for, for why neo-Calvinism has had deep interest in this. Um, and it's really interesting you bring that up, um, Corey, because I also think, and I see this within their writings, that they don't just believe that music serves it's a creational purpose. Of course, it's rooted within the creation mandate that's an or organic result of culture, and that that shouldn't be shunned in a pietistic way, of course, but it should be brought to light through grace. But they also have an eschatological uh, view of it. They mention that several times, um, and, and Kaipa one of the big reasons that he actually became a hymnodist and not just an exclusive psalmodist was because he said that it um 
it, it doesn't allow you to fully sing of, of Christ and of Christ of Christ's coming and, and of this eschatological vision of, of, of redeeming of, of nature. And so of, to me, that's all very neo-Calvinist, right? It, it's rooted in creation. And then it has this eschatological vision at the very end. And music plays a big part in that as we um, experience, you know, spiritual sanctification. And that's part of, that's one of the reasons that Babink actually includes singing as a part of the spiritual discipline and reformed ethics as well so yeah it, it all ties together to me in a very very new covenant way and something that bridges those comments between Mokori and leah there as well and also gray too there is is that neo-calvinism also has a distinct emphasis on the catholicity not only of the church but also the catholicity of culture that there is only one world that was created by god for god's glory as as, as a revelation of, of what god is like and who god is and so the, the Catholicity of the Christian faith is the, like the flip side of the coin to the Catholicity of culture. So there's no distinct cultural like, iteration that the Christian faith cannot grow in and then you know, produce something that's kind of like indigenous, um, but also universal or local and universal at the same time. And that means that then in terms of worship, in terms of music, that there's that also embraces that, that you know, universal cultural Catholicity, um, but that'll be diverse in different places. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, that's wonderful. Um, let me um, something I've been wondering. Maybe maybe put in a little bit more practical question. I'm 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 working at m m more uh, as a pastor than as a scholar. Um, so making liturgies is part of my daily work. Um, and so in my church, which is a church which stems from that new Calvinist tradition. Um, there were barely any psalms sung anymore. Um, there were much more hymns, contemporary music. Um, and so I tried to bring in psalms a little bit more again. And I find that I'm really looking forward to hear what you, how you deal with that, Leah, what you think about it, that people find it very difficult to sing the psalms. Mm -hmm. um, because exactly of that point, you, you just mentioned Kuiper saying that they're, they're not about Christ and they're psalms from Israel um, and from a long time ago. And people find it, I mean, you need a kind of hermeneutical way of singing those songs. You can't just sing them like you can sing a contemporary worship song. Um, so I, I, yeah, just how, how do you think, maybe to put it a little bit more broader, how do you think can we, uh, can we continue to use and sing those psalms in our worship in um, also today? And how can we help people to be able to sing them and to, to also sing them in a way that, that helps them and edifies them and, uh, serves their serves the liturgy right well it's actually really sad that you do say that you work at a church in which psalms have kind of been pushed to the wayside because that was the big concern of Baffing and Kuiper as well that they were concerned that in the churches that had introduced hymns the psalms would be pushed away and that's what we see today and that's what they saw in a lot of their churches um, so it's, it's interesting to hear you say that but I also think so. I also think that you're right to want to continue this beautiful tradition of, of singing the Psalms. And it can be very difficult for congregations to sing the Psalms, primarily within, I think, just within the Reformed tradition as well. There hasn't been a lot of good progress, I think, on just composing music that makes the 
the long versification of the Psalms easy for congregations to be able to kind of digest and understand. And we, we see that um, Calvin's Genevan Psalter, which the melodies were written by Louis Bourgeois and some other French composers, were still being used 300 years later, or even today. Um, and we need to, we see people today, maybe like the Gettys and some other folks kind of composing uh, music that makes it easier for a congregation, new music, for congregations to sing these psalms. And I think that that's, that could be a big part of it. Of course, there's a ling linguistical element we want for them to be able to kind of understand and be able to understand the text. And there's also, I think, a very musical element to it. Of, and to me, that's something that neo-Calvinism um, is inspired by, right? Like we don't have to shun necessarily um, new styles of music, you know, that I don't think the neo-Calvinists would necessarily say that in the right cultural context, like drums or guitars are necessarily evil, right? Um, and so maybe introducing the Psalms in a way that there's a musical element, we think about how all these things work together in the liturgy, instead of being scared of them or instead of shunning them in some sort of way, right? But yeah, I think that's wonderful that you're trying to introduce the Psalms more and because that is very, it is a core part of, of the Dutch reform tradition. Um, it's just kind of thinking about how can we update this with modernity, right? It, it is those kinds of questions. Yeah. So how would you respond to those, you know, there's probably a few listeners out there, they're still holding on to exclusive psalmody and they've heard Marinus's comment and they always point to Holland present-day Holland and say, this is the effects of Bobby and Kuiper. They didn't uphold orthodoxy yet modernity, but they actually led us from orthodoxy to modernity and to modernism alone, right? How would we respond to, to that kind of worry that really we should come back to exclusive solemnity because this is really a trajectory. It, it leads to decline. Ooh, that's a tough question. I mean, I have no, I, yikes. Some exclusive solemnists, you know, are very, they love their position. And I think that there is a, a reasonable argument for it. Um, I really do. Um, but at the end of the day, Kuiper, and that's kind of what he explains in our worship, is that um, there's true, he doesn't find there's truly a, we have to get our prescriptions as reformed people, you get your prescriptions of worship from scripture, right? That's, that's the entire regulative principle, this idea that what is in scripture is allowed, that's allowable. And Kuiper kind of argues that there truly is no real biblical mandate to only sing the Psalms, right? That it's, we have this hymn book given to us by God, 150 songs, that's incredible. And we absolutely need to prioritize those and sing those and love those and really allow God's word to edify us. And I'm fully behind that one. 110%. But Colossians 3.16 also says to sing to your heart, sing uh, from the heart with uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so we can understand from that, and Kuiper also draws from church tradition, that there are Christian hymns from very early within the Christian uh, liturgies. And so we can't truly argue that exclusive psalmody um, is a biblical mandate. And that's to me what I think I would rest on is not what is best for your church, what's best for the culture, what's best. It's more of, you know, what can we draw from scripture? And scripture doesn't, I don't think, give us a necessarily a clear answer either way. So then it then is just going to have to be up to the discretion of whoever the, the church leader is, what what the church truly needs in terms of, of what kind of they prioritize for, for their singing. And I wonder if there's an analogy as well there between, you know, exclusive psalmody um, to a sort of biblicist outlook as well, and, and an analogy, therefore, between sort of the creeds and confessions of our church, the way that we see them as norm norms rather than norming norms they're, they're themselves normed by scripture, 
and yet we see them as useful authorities and guides, as faithful summaries of the biblical text. And in the same way, we can take a look at scripture as norming the sort of hymns that we sing as well. It's not as if we don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture, but rather we see these other um, useful guides in our worship as well, just as we see the Christian confessions as useful guides. So I guess one thing that I would say in response to your question, Gray, you know, about people who see moving away from exclusive samity to inclusive samity as a, as a necessary downgrade is that it's not an unwarranted criticism or concern. And that I think if you move your church from exclusive samity to completely excluding samity so that you have an entire church and everyone who grows up in it in that church never ever singing or knowing the psalms i don't think that the hymnody is an upgrade on the exclusive samity and that's not an argument for exclusive samity but i think in relative terms um you know i grew up singing only psalms in church and there are lots of great hymns that it would have been excellent to sing growing up as well but i have no like regrets that i grew up memorizing the psalms week in week out and they will be with me i hope for the rest of my life you know they're just carved into my memory and i hope into my heart and um i see that as itself as a kind of as part of christian discipleship that um I think that what well, you know what I hope is that um, that these are psalms to to live and to die by, and that if one day I'm on my deathbed and the things that are etched most deeply into the very depths of my being are the psalms, that the, that those words will be with me, and that Scripture will be at work in me um, throughout the whole of my life. And I look at lots of you know, churches that that never ever sing psalms. And where the, the kind of diet of praise is, it's not memorable uh, for a whole host of different reasons. And I mean memorable in the proper sense of you, you learn it by by committing it to memory rather than a kind of memorable and it just in a, like, I don't like it sense. But so it's not memorable melodically. Like so much contemporary church music is really difficult to sing. And melodically it's, I mean, I'm, I mean, Leah, you can like, articulate this properly. I'm not, not at all any kind of musicologist, but the kind of melodies are so indistinct. Um, whereas, you know, kind of traditional hymnody or metrical psalm tunes have singable melodies that I can, you can just follow and repeat, but also um, they're not memorable in the same way that, um, well, a metrical phrasing of the psalms is because it's a kind of poetry that has a particular meter. Um, and but they're also yeah they're not memorable for all of those different reasons and if your church tradition gives you as a child if it gives you nothing that you will retain you know after a long life on your deathbed then that's a distinct kind of failing um like i remember being a child watching well when my like my grandmother died and realizing that at the end of this life that that the pra liturgical practices, I wouldn't have known to call it that at the age of 12, but realizing that the Psalms were again carved into her being and that you know, she lost a lot of her memory towards the end of her life. But you see you know, old Christians who've grown up in that kind of a context who who have something that is so deep within them that's, that has come about through what they sang and, and how they learned to sing it at church. And that if you lose that entirely, I, I think I would, if I had to, if it was a straight up choice, I, you know, binary, I would choose exclusive acapella samity over excluding um, Sam's entirely. But then I think, you know, what you find with with Bavink and Kuiper is that they're that they still try and find a, 
like they don't see it as an either or and they think that there's a a good way to retain singing sams and again to progress also the musical tradition that gives you you know forms of songs that you do remember rather than having very indistinct melodies um so they're they're quite helpful i think in plotting a way forward like that so um, but they're, I think, again, really an underutilized resource for churches that are trying to work out, you know, how do you, how do you cultivate Christian hearts and minds um, also through your song? Um, I think people just aren't aware enough of the resources that neo-Calvinism offers. And for so many people, evangelicals, for example, if they're aware of neo-Calvinism at all, it is, it's purely a theology for what you do outside of church. You know, it'll give you a doctrine of common grace or antithesis. It'll tell you, you know, how to think about the iPhone, but it doesn't really tell you how to think about you know, like the call to worship and then the opening hymn or Sam or, you know, the, how you progress through meeting with God together in a worship service. Right. Well, it's it's interesting because Greg mentioned earlier that the neo-Calvinist movement really was a ecclesiastical movement. And we see that in ways other just than music, right? Like we have Bavink writing um, a sacrifice of praise about confessionalism. And we have Bavink writing um, about preaching and wanting to research the preaching, right? So there's a lot of things that they wrote about within just the liturgy, within the worship service that they kind of wanted to revitalize and they kind of realized that the secession didn't really fix all of some of these problems, right? It wasn't just about the doctrine. There was also some things that they they realized they needed to kind of think about. And um, it's it, but it's interesting that you mentioned just the unsingability of so many contemporary songs, just because we do see, unfortunately, with the rise of recorded music, so much of our Christian music today was written for consumption and not for uh, singability. And that's where so much of that comes in is just this, like the industry, right? The Christian music industry. And I think that we have to guard ourselves away from that. And I absolutely agree with you that if you want singability, you, you need to just go back to these old forms of things that, that are written for congregational song and not for listen uh, for Spotify or on the radio, because those, those are not going to help your congregation at all. But, you know, I mentioned the Gettys earlier. The Gettys do a wonderful job of this. Uh, people like uh, Matt Mason. Uh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are kind of up and coming and really concerned about this. But I totally agree with you that the Psalms are something that do need to be revitalized within our churches. But it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or if it's completely mm. exclusive or or completely not. Yeah, the Gettys are great, and also um, like RUF hymns. There, there, there's a lot of great stuff out there where again it's the traditional kind of melodic um, pattern, but also in, in, a, in a kind of culturally adapted style too. So I, I like those a lot. Leah, one of the things we've been talking about the last couple of episodes is capturing sensibilities that uh, are typical of neo-Calvinist theologians and thinkers and what makes somebody part of that tradition. You started to bring up earlier something I just wondered if you wanted to say more about, and that's as it relates to liturgy and worship, the sensibility of neo-Calvinism of unity and diversity as it's applied to culture and contextualization. Yeah. And, you know, that it's a lesson that is desperately needed in the midst of decades of worship war, that that grace uh, restores nature and does not suppress it or destroy it or even elevate it. But anyway, you, you had mentioned that briefly and moved on from it. I wondered if you had more thoughts about it. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I'm kind of writing about and why I see that they even kind of took this position of hymnody can be kind of okay too. 
Um, right, just because there is this idea in the in the neo-Calvinist literature that that moving like trying as a Christian as Christians, we don't need to just like pick up our stuff and move it over here and set down our camp and just completely shun away from anything else in cultural uh, progression, right? That that's that's very pietistic. That's very cold and that's not that's not helpful right and there's this idea that all cultural progress all of culture so not just music but art and science and engineering and industrialization all of these things uh, are, are being restored right through grace and through the redeeming work of christ and through this for this eschatological vision right finally one day will finally be consummated and i just i you know, it's funny because this whole worship war stuff, I definitely grew up on the tail end of it, but my home church did split when I was about eight or nine, just over contemporary music that we've created a, like a hymnic service and a contemporary music service. And it was really sad for me because I grew up going to church with my family, with my aunts and uncles and cousins, and they started going to the contemporary service. And so I saw my family less and less. And it was this idea of like, why are we splitting our church? Why are we splitting my family up over something as simple as music, right? And then there's this idea of like, oh, like we can't go to these new new forms of music. And that's, but that's just something that I do at my own church. I mean, I'm a music minister and we do, we sing these powerful Christian hymns, like A Mighty Fortress, dating all back from the Reformation. We sing Fanny Crosby, we sing Baptist stuff. And we also, I also have my students. Uh, my students don't know how to play the organ, okay? My students know how to play guitar. My students know how to play the drums. My students know how to sing and play keyboard. And so that's to me is also the very congregational element, right? That this isn't just me up there singing and like leading, right? We, we want it to be congregational. We want it to be congregational song. And so what are the kinds of musical talents that the people in our congregation have and how can we use that and not be scared of that? And so, yeah, I think that's a very, that's a very neo-Calvinist idea that all cultural progress, the things in culture, our anthropology are rooted within the creation mandate and rooted within the cultural mandate. And, and these cultural progressions are being redeemed and they're being restored and we don't have to be scared of them and shun them and um, condemn them, but we do need to look at uh, their usefulness inside the church with discretion and, and with prayerfulness. And we also do, of course, need to look back on our traditions and see, you know, what have people done in the past and what can we improve upon? Yeah, thank you, Leah. I really like that, that way of approaching it. Um, it it's, it's, it's really also the kind of the, the way I'm trying to balance these two in the way I make liturgies every week, uh, exactly how you say it, like not, not saying not picking only one and condemning the other, but just trying to, to have them both and, and, and taking for the value they, they both have. Um, I've also been, been wondering, uh, listening to you these, this past half hour, whether um, the Psalms in some ways just require a somewhat more mature faith maybe than some other Psalms do. They're less accessible. They require uh, that you understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. I mean, how, how do you sing that you long to be in the temple when you when you see no temple, uh, and just just to, to take for example Psalm eighty four as an example, and, and there are many others who are saying about Jerusalem and Israel. I mean, what what do you mean when you say this? So, so you need a framework um, in in order to understand what you sing. So it it may maybe also be helpful to just um, not not try to sing the Psalms as the same way you sing a contemporary worship hymn. Um, it it will never convey as directly you're feeling at that moment or speak so directly um, as a contemporary hymn does. But it's not a problem because it, it can touch, as James has also wonderfully said, 
it can just become part as 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 i've experienced the same part of your your own system of your bones and it becomes um yeah so what i i've also grown up seeing in sam's almost uniquely um and they're just part of my system and they're they're so i treasure them really and i, I want my children to have them too so we 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 sing them at home so that they also learn them because in, in the church alone they won't um but just you have different layers different kinds of kinds of music and then allow a place for the psalms which are a little bit more difficult but then rich and then also the others who just can convey this wonderful affection you feel right now and, and are very accessible which is also really a strength of that music mm-hmm. so i know minutes you say that they don't or that the psalms aren't as immediately accessible um in terms of well, some aspects of their content like singing about you know zion or um all the, all the things that they that the psalms point beyond themselves towards that aren't fulfilled at the time of the psalms being written so they're not as immediately accessible in that sense but there's another way where they are much more at least in my experience accessible than almost all modern um Christian worship songs, and that is in terms of emotional, um, the emotional range of the Psalms. Um, There was a great essay that Carl Truman wrote a while ago now called What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And it was an argument for the importance of singing the Psalms, because you're not always happy in life, and life has lots of ups and lots of downs, and depression is a real thing, and um, if if you live life with an emotional range as humans do and you turn up at church every sunday of life and you only ever sing songs that presuppose that christianity is about being happy or that you are happy being there um, and that that assume that you would never ever be a miserable christian or or if you are that there's something necessarily wrong with you or sinful about that Um, the disconnect between your lived experience of human emotion and human psychology and the realities of life in a fallen world will be really out of step with what you get to sing in church. So you'll rarely sing songs that will have any kind of way of capturing or or bringing your life before God in whatever that situation is. Whereas if you sing the Psalms, you have some real high points of rejoicing and and lots of happiness. But also there are Psalms that give voice to a sense of being, of feeling abandoned by God, of being crushed by the weight of your sin, of, feeling angry against um, your oppressors, um, of, of wondering what on earth do you do with people who really hate God, but whose lives just seem to go from strength to strength and success to success, um, and, and how you process those feelings. Um, and you get into the, the directly imprecatory Psalms, and uh, they, they seem really shocking to people who don't know that these things are in the Bible. Um, so the Psalms do give you a completely different a level of emotional register. I once read a brilliant quote by an Australian theologian called Ben Myers that I remember sharing it online at the time on Facebook and some of my friends who've never sung psalms and who go to churches that don't sing psalms were really offended by it but I thought it was a great quote and it was that the idea was that if you go from um, never having sung psalms to learning to sing the psalms uh, and moving from just kind of praise and worship to psalm singing it's like you've only ever watched Friends and now all of a sudden you're reading Shakespeare. Um, I, not wanting to diss modern writers because there are some great ones out there. But on the whole, I think Ben Myers is he's touching on some truth there. Yeah. And, you know, Leah mentioned anthropology once again. And everything that you all said just now just reminds me of a trope that I'm beginning to have a growing distaste for. 
the trope normally is that that you know when you take a look at neo-Calvinism, especially Abraham Kuyper and Herman Boving, there's a mystical Kuyper and a worldly Kuyper. That there's an otherworldly Boving, and then there is a thisworldly Boving. And I find that incredibly unhelpful because as we're talking about these things, you know, the reason why Boving and Kuyper gave so many granular descriptions about everyday life and everyday music and how bodies work, you know, Boving spent many, many pages, for example, on psychology, on focusing on the fact that affection and feeling is not a separate faculty of the human soul, but is rather to be subordinated under willing and knowing. Why was he spending so much time on human psychology and human anthropology and sort of inner workings of our psyche? Well, it's because ultimately they were concerned to, to consider how can we form people for better worship? They weren't just focusing on bodies and cognition and affect for the sake of getting lost in this worldly, right? Um, was reading Hans Borsma's critique of Kuiper recently, and, and he really pits these two sort of ideas against one another that you know, we've only focused on the cultural embodiment of Kuiper, but we haven't really focused on the mystical side of Kuiper. But this is a false dichotomy. For Kuiper and Bavink, right, the way in which we human beings worship is precisely by focusing on how our habits perform. And as I've been working on um, theological anthropology lately, I've seen how their thought on humanity has really intersected with what's this, this new theory called affect theory. This idea that we human beings are are not primarily thinking beings we're not primarily changed by whether or not our intellect affirms new ideas or changes in ideas they don't necessarily translate into bodies and intuitions the feeling that we get in our gut but rather oftentimes our bodies are intransigent they are recalcitrant to the ideas that change in our minds and the way in which we are formed therefore cannot just be primarily by an intellectual change but but through all these formative daily activities that we engage in, the kind of music that we listen to, the kind of social environment that we engage ourselves in. And that's why, again, Boving and Kuiper, all of their focuses on these normal, everyday, creational, cultural activities is for the sake of worship. They never lost sight of the fact that, that the church is still a pearl, the gospel is still a pearl, beautiful in and of itself. But how do we appreciate the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of, of God in and of himself? It's precisely by attending to the ways in which our bodies are attuned to our environment and how we are recalcitrant to the changes from outside because we're sinful beings. And so I think um, this is such a, a neglected part of maybe um, this, this unity of, of nature and grace, this unity of culture and recreation is, is such a neglected part of neo-Calvinism, but it's also a neglected part of our sort of lopsided intellectualist evangelical movement that kind of either bought into the evangelical contemporary music industry because, well, you know, that's what people like. Let's just not think about it. Or the sort of, you know, just focus on pure theology and neglecting focus on worship entirely. Yeah, Gray, you mentioned uh, beauty there. And, you know, Bob Inc. wrote an essay on a theology of beauty, beauty and aesthetics. Um, and Kuiper wrote on beauty as well. Uh, Leah, I'm just wondering, it just made me think, um, in, in your, the deep dive narrative you gave at the beginning of getting into reading Bobbing's Dogmatics, and uh, obviously you've read quite, quite a bit of both Bobbing and Kuiper as, as uh, you're, you're revealing to us in this podcast. I'm just wondering how, um, how that's affected the way you 
write liturgy or you prescribe music for, for your congregation. I, I'm, I'm asking that because I'm thinking about Bobbing's essay on beauty, where he, um, where he basically defines beauty as the meeting place between truth and goodness in, in classical verbiage, right? And so he says that true beauty in music or whatever else it may be has to coincide with both with truth and the good, or it has to have content of some sort. So I'm just wondering how has um, your theological journey impacted the way you view content in lyrics, content, and the way you prescribe your music? Yeah, I mean, that's a really complicated question, you know, just partially because the context in which I work, right? I don't work at a reformed necessarily church. I work at a, at a Southern Baptist church because I am still technically a Southern Baptist. Um, you know, but it absolutely has shaped the way in which I think about music. You know, I do think about, it really has been interesting for me to look at some of the hymns in which I even grew up with. And I'm like, okay, are we singing this? Because it actually conveys the truth of scripture and the truth of our doctrine. And this, are we just singing this because it's a fun song and it's in our hymnal? And that's interesting just because I hear that critiqued about, you know, contemporary music all the time, right? Oh, we're just singing this because it's new and it's fun to sing and it doesn't have really good lyrics. And then I think I look at some of the stuff that we have in our hymnal and we're like, oh, this is hymnody. And it's really not, <laughs> it's really some of the very most trite um, sort of songs you've ever seen in your life. And so I really do think that's really that that really has shaped the way in which I I think about the kinds of things I I want to give my congregation things that convey truth that that are rooted in not just uh, not just fun things to sing but are rooted in just scripture itself you know I love hymns like greatest thy faithfulness is taken straight from the book of lamentations right like it's from scripture it's basically quoting scripture we don't even just have to quote the psalms right there are lots of there's there's also the magnificat there's there's also all kinds of hymns that draw from the text of scripture itself right and so that's always definitely what i try and do but it's interesting that you mentioned beauty just because that's interesting it's been really interesting to me to kind of see the way in which that's one of the things that Boffin's actually criticized on by even people like Bill Edgar um, is that he, when he treats, when he kind of takes this Platonist idea of what beauty is and kind of drawing upon the classicism of like, this is true beauty and it's and it's rooted in these like norms of nature. And, and so our music has to kind of be based on that. And there is some interesting things to explore there um, to kind of take, because he also draws a little bit of Augustine and Calvin's idea of what music is and what beauty is and how we have to conform to these norms and they were also really inspired by Plato so it is kind of interesting to see how I do I definitely think that there is truth in that that we need to base our music upon truth and we need to base it upon um, the standards of what we might idea as God's beauty but I also don't think that we can truly get this idea of like a aesthetical norm or a right that we can really understand what that really means because I think that that we get into some conflicting ideas there, but that's a whole different, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. Yeah, so Corey's question there then about the relationship of beauty and truth and what that looks like in church worship is, you know, that's a, it's a tough question to answer. I really appreciated your answer there, Leah. But it's an easier question to answer when we think about music in the church than music in well, outside of the church, particularly in very secular cultures. And that at least within the church, there is a theological framework that holds beauty and truth together, that holds them accountable to the same standard. Um, most of our conversation today has been about neo-Calvinism as a resource for thinking about music within the church. 
um, which has been a very helpful corrective to just how so much of the emphasis and how people perceive neo-Calvinism is that it's a resource for how we think about Christianity outside of the church or what you do with culture Christianly. So it's been helpful to correct that. Um, but maybe we're, and I realize that our time is starting to um, get close to the, the close of the show now, but maybe as a final question for all of you, I think it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on how neo-Calvinism um, can be a resource for how we participate in music outside of the church then. So, you know, I first got into this whole tradition, or, or I guess what compelled me to at first was as a teenager, I was really into music. I played in a bunch of bands um, and just devoured music. But then, you know, when you get to like 16 years old, you become much more um, aware of like, the content of lyrics, for example, and that there's that there's a whole shape of life that's being conveyed. Uh, and then there's a kind of dissonance between your enjoyment of the, the music itself, um, but that clashes with, you know, as a Christian, can I in good conscience enjoy the, the words that go along with it, for example? And at least in British evangelicalism, that's a, like a conundrum that goes back to Cliff Richard, which is quite a long time ago, where people can't, evangelicalism hasn't really generated enough good resources to think through that question. Um, I was really kind of turned off by like CCM, um, just as cheesy and musically it wasn't as good as what the rest of the world was producing. And yet, how, how do you think about taking part in music in, 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 a, in a kind of secular cultural context? So that was an impact that created so many questions for me as a, as a Christian teenager that eventually when I discovered neo-Calvinism were helped considerably. Um, I don't play in, in bands anymore. I'm, I'm not that cool anymore. Uh, my kids would be mortified if I, I even tried. But um, how do you guys think, you know, about uh, yeah, this kind of question then. So what do you do with music outside of the church on the basis of neo-Calvinism? Can I just say before anybody answers, we've been searching for a musical track to use at the opening of our podcast. And I feel like, James, you've been holding out on us. Where where are the tracks? So I, I played in, so my first band was an Oasis tribute band. Shocking revelations now. If you guys even know of Oasis, um, they were big in the '90s in Britpop. So definitely, we had, we had no original tracks. We just copied Oasis songs. Um, but and then I played. I did play in a Christian band. Um, but I'm I'm not willing to divulge any more information. It's okay, James. It's a moment of weakness. You know, I also played in a Christian band, so we've got that common solidarity there. And I wasn't even a Christian yet, so I happened to go to a Christian international school. And, you know, this is a good way to just show off my guitar skills. On the side, though, I was also playing an emo metal band. So that was another another take that we emo can all metal. kind of lament wow. about. That's wow. right. A lot, a lot of screaming involved. And uh, I still enjoy my heavy metal. I, I hear students all the time and they would say, you know, oh, Dr. Sutanto, he probably just listens to classical music. And I said, no, it's just hymns <laughs> and, uh, and metal, really. Those are the two the genres that I listen to. But it's a, it's it's an interesting question you you you're putting on the table. I'm 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 look, really looking forward to hear what Leah thinks about it because we we have debates in our church among the people who make the liturgy um, about this. Can we use hymns uh, or songs from popular culture within a church context? And sometimes they fit really beautifully, um, but we change the meaning, of course. And then there's other people who say, no, 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 we we should never do that because this song was written um, as such as a love song as about mother or anything so we cannot bring it into the church and then and then start using it um, and my reply is always well 
this has been going on for a long time um, because Jesu uh, Manefreude, for example, it's a it's a it's a it's a hymn from a Lutheran hymn from the 16th century. I'm not sure. Leah may know better than I do, but it came from a, a love song, Flora Manefreude, um, and it was just moved into the church and it became and Bach made a beautiful motet of it and it was used in the church. So I think um, I think we can, but it's well. What do you think about that, Leah? No, I agree. I mean, even, in, even within the reform tradition, some of the melodies from the Genevan Psalter that Calvin approved of were folk songs. Uh, so we can we can understand that this has been something that's been going on for a long time. Of course, you have to use discretion. I don't think you would want to like, you know, put in something that was really culturally affiliated with something. But overall, to me, this is where the idea of like sphere sovereignty if i was gonna say that you know it kind of actually comes into play right that we have this we have the church and it does its thing and we need to be very careful about what we about how we regulate our music we do have to be very careful because there's so much out there that could negatively influence the music in our in our churches but at the same time the music of of quote secular to use that word um secular culture rocks <laughs> and to put a point like it does it's awesome and i don't think christians i think we need to be careful but constantly pursue and know what we are being catechized by by our ha habitual listening to but we also can celebrate the common grace that's been given kuiper himself actually admits this i think in the stone lectures that uh, secular people have been given greater gifts of music and art than Calvinists. <laughs> so we can, we can appreciate that and we can say that's a gift of God's common grace. Well, Leah, it's been so great to have you here. It's been so good to talk to you about neo-Calvinism and its intersection with music and worship and overall just great to, to have you with us and to see you after a couple of years. Um, it's such a joy and delight, and also to see you flourishing within the depths of neo-Calvinism. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm.